0: So over the past decade, from ages ranging from 14 years old to 88 years old, I've had conversations with individuals who are wrestling with Christianity's relevancy to today's culture, but but specifically in those conversations, Christianity's relevancy to, to the issues that they were experiencing Paraphrasing here from those conversations over the past 10 years, here were some of the the statements and questions that were made. How can we know for certain Jesus is the only way to God? To, To say Christianity is the only one true religion, I believe is an intolerant and exclusive position. There's just too wide a gap between Christianity and science. Christians can, can never, when I engage them, answer clearly questions I have about the Bible or, or things like evolution. To me, Christianity is a blind faith. There's not really much evidence or proof for it. Since going to college, I've done more listening to the other worldviews and religions, and my parents always dismiss my questions And they just tell me, go back to church and get rid of that garbage. Sorry, that's a a weak answer to me. I have stage four cancer. Both of my parents died from cancer. I have a hard time believing a God who says he is sovereign and loving would allow so much suffering on one individual. Let alone all the evil and suffering I see in our world. The Bible is 2,000 years old, written by a bunch of random men. It's outdated and not relevant to today. Father, we come before you this morning, thankful each time that we can gather and worship you. Father, we just witnessed through the, the children and adults of our special needs ministry, what an example of praising you. Thank you for their witness. Thank you for their example to us. God, as we talk today about the why of this summer series, why relevant faith, we pray, starting today and through the weeks ahead and throughout this summer, that you alone would guide this series. You alone would guide the purpose, the words spoken, the way every person in this room engages with others to invite them to be part of it, And God, bottom line, you would equip your church to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to a culture who is questioning, is Christianity for real? Father, I ask that you would be with us today. I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be honoring, pleasing to you, O God. In your name we pray, amen. Today our goal is to leave here with a clear understanding of the why to our summer series entitled Relevant Faith. Ron, the next three weeks so we're gonna, is going to finish up our first John series before we, we kick off Relevant Faith August 10th and 11th. But we wanted to, to stop today, four weeks out, to make sure we have a clear picture of where we're headed with this series. I want to start this morning with the title, Why Relevant Faith. Many would call this series an apologetics series. I'm going to break down that word in just a few minutes. But apologetics is basically the science and art of defending a belief system. If you haven't noticed, the word apologetics is not the coolest word in the world. And people out in culture, if you mention the word, they'll have no idea what you're talking about. Actually, some people right now in the church have no idea what that word means. A team of us for the past three months who have met and discussed and have been praying landed on relevant faith because we want to communicate to our congregation. We want to communicate to the next generation. We want to communicate to the guests that we will invite in August and September. We want to engage our culture and say Christianity is not an outdated and blind faith. It is the reasonable faith It is the intellectual faith, and it is the relevant faith for today. That word about relevant means this, to be closely connected to what is being done or considered, appropriate for the current time, period, or contemporary circumstances. The contemporary circumstances of our culture sets up Christianity to absolutely be the relevant faith for today. We live today in what many call now a culture of confusion. The next generation is bombarded with information and told never to commit to anything. So much so that it, you can see it in the data. Barna Group said last year, the biblical worldview of the, the adults, think 18 years and older, of the adult population of our country, the biblical worldview in 2016 was already pretty low at 10%. As of last year, 2018, it's down to 7%. 7% of people, adults in our country, have a biblical worldview. Gen Z's even worse. Gen Z is their children and teenagers right now. 4% of Generation Z have a biblical worldview. So much so that people go to the, the depth of saying they are biblically illiterate. James Emery White states in his book, Serious Times, that actually, written about a decade ago, but he was already seeing this movement in our culture of confusion. He says we're now influenced by these three major factors. Secularism. America is no longer even close to being normed by Christian values. Pluralism. Many belief systems now compete for our allegiance, and they're all seen as equal. True for you, not for me. Let's just get along. Privatization. Matters of faith are to be kept to oneself. Today is all about personal autonomy. Our culture now is so far down this path that Oxford Dictionary has a word of the year every year. And in 2016, the word of the year to define our culture today is post-truth. Here's what they defined it as in 2016. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion or just personal belief. Why relevant faith? Because if the church is not going to answer the call to turn our nation back to God, then who will? While preparing for this message specifically, why is the Bible chapel taking this on? Why are we doing this as a church? I kept coming back, no matter how hard I tried to do something else, I kept coming back to our five values. Word, worship, connect, serve, share. If you have your notes in your uh, program today, we're going to walk through five reasons why we believe we need to hit this series, Relevant Faith. And right now, we're going to that first one. It starts right here. The Word of God. Apologetics is rooted in Scripture. I want to look at two passages today. We could look at many more, but two that I believe really stamp down that we need to hit this area hard as a church. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start there. 1 Peter chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible, every verse will be on the screen. So Peter writes this letter to dispersed believers of the first century world. They're spread out because they have been on heavy persecution. And he's writing with them with a motive. The first, make sure they understand that they are secure in Jesus Christ. The believer has assurance of his or her salvation. Nothing physically someone can do to you, Peter says, that can strip away your spiritual security in Christ. Second, he is writing to them with a sense of urgency. If you read this letter, you can feel the urgency in Peter's words. Church, we got to be urgent in the culture. That was the first century culture. Obviously, the same is true today. 1 Peter chapter 3, look at verses 13 through 15 with me. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect. That word defense in verse 15 is the Greek word apologia. It means to give a defense, literally a verbal defense, a reason, statement, or argument for what you believe. Contextually, Peter most likely was charging these first century believers to say, be ready. That's what always be prepared means. Be ready to give a defense when people say, why in the world would you suffer for Jesus Christ? Look at your life. Why? Peter says, be ready to give a clear articulation for why you're all in for Jesus. And from that term, apologia, we get this area today of Christian apologetics. Eight times in the New Testament you see the word apologia. We're not going to go through them all today. All the references are in your notes if you want to track them down this week. Apologetics does not mean to say you're sorry. It refers to the defense of a person would make for what they believe to be absolutely true. For Christians it's the evidence we give for the validity of our Christian faith. Frank Turk, well-known apologist, puts it this way. Christian apologetics can be summarized in two parts. Objective reasons and evidence that Christianity is true, it corresponds to the reality all around us, and the communication of that truth to the world. Some might say, okay, makes sense. What does that practically look like in the life of a believer? Well, let's go right back to Scripture. Turn with me now to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Paul here is at the end of his second missionary journey. Uh, He is sent forth to Athens. Uh, He has a group coming with him, uh, specifically uh, Timothy and Silas is not far behind. So Paul could have took a little break from ministry, a little siesta, but that, uh, what Paul does, right? On the go, on the go, on the go. So he's in Athens by himself. If there was ever a city of that time that you could say was biblically illiterate, Athens. Most often, if you look at Paul, when he's reaching people for Christ, he spits scripture out. All he does is spit Old Testament scripture. Here, he's in a biblically illiterate city, and he's gonna engage the culture, understand where they're coming from, to break down the intellectual and spiritual obstacles they have to the Christian faith. Look at me, look with me to verses 16 through 18 to start. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, those who were gonna come join him, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. He always went to the synagogue, the religious elite, to show the Old Testament pointed to Jesus and he, and the devout persons. And he went to the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul just went to the city center, engaged people. In conversation, specifically, verse 18 says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. Paul's hanging in the marketplace, observing the culture, interacting with the people of Athens. He's starting to stir up some commotion. The philosophers of that day, I can't break them down in too much detail, but basically this. The Epicureans said the purpose of life is basically pleasure and happiness. Do whatever makes you happy. Sound familiar to today at all? Do whatever that makes you happy. The Stoics were all about life purpose. You want to find a way to make a name in history. It's all about purpose. So here's Paul in Athens, educating himself on the city And we're going to see how he uses that to break down these barriers for Christ. He's all about the gospel. Some people say, Paul here looks like he's doing cultural compromise. He doesn't mention scripture. Oh, he mentions scripture. Maybe not the the exact verses, but he's speaking the truth of scripture throughout. If you read the whole chapter, it's the meta-narrative of scripture. uh, Creation, as he's about to do right now. Fall, redemption, consummation. He's speaking the truth of scripture. But he's speaking to a biblically illiterate city. And he's using what they know, what they believe in, to point them to Jesus. let's keep going. So he's brought to uh, what many call Mars Hill. It's the Areopagus here, which was the judicial center of Athens. He's caused so much commotion. People are like, just let this dude speak to everyone. So here's Paul's address. Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive, I have observed you, I have listened to you, I have understood you. That in every way, you seem to be religious. For as I passed along and I observed, I observed your culture, the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Look what Paul's doing. Paul says, I I looked at all these idols you have for your gods. Actually, you were so concerned, you might have left one out, you just did one for an unknown god. He says, that's actually the most accurate one you have. Because the very God you're trying to worship is completely unknown to you. Let me proclaim him to you. Verse 24, he starts with creation. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He's connecting with their barriers. He doesn't live in this idle stuff you're making. Nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. Since he himself, now remember, what are the Stoics all about? Stoics are all about purpose, purpose, purpose. I think this sums up purpose. God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You want purpose? Let me tell you about the one true God. 26, and he made from one man, speaking of Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not far from us. Now, look what he does in verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said for we are indeed his offspring. What scripture is he quoting there? He's not. He's literally quoting Greek philosophy. He's using their literature to point them to the real truth of Jesus Christ. It's like someone today quoting Charles Darwin's quote on evolution to point them to that actually God is the divine creator. He has engaged the Athenians. He has understood them. He has discerned how to use their barriers to the Lord to speak the real truth to him. He doesn't leave the Bible on the shelf and just get into arguments. He is using the barriers, the understanding of the age to bring the truth of Christ. If you keep reading, he goes through sin. He calls them to repent, and he says, God will judge the world one day. And verse 32 shows what's his mission in all of this? Verse 32 Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, meaning Paul preached the gospel, he used all of this to get to the gospel. Some mocked, can't control the response. But some said, you know what? We will hear you again about this. 1 Peter 3, every believer, first century, 21st century. When people ask you, why are you a Christian? can you give a clear answer? In sales, they call it the elevator pitch, right? If you had just a minute to explain to someone why God rules your life, are you ready to give that defense? Second, we learn from Paul. By understanding those who are engaging with the gospel, we're able to break down these intellectual, these spiritual barriers that God may use us To point them to the resurrection. Point them to the truth of the gospel. That's that's the first reason why we're doing this series. God's word shows us this model of relevant faith. Understanding the times in order to make clear the gospel to those who don't know him. Here's the second point. Relevant faith is also all about worship. The preparation we do and the action we do of defending our faith actually exalts God. We say that worship is everything we do unto God. When you go to work tomorrow, the way you conduct yourself is worship. Students, your academics, how you pursue God in your studies, worship. Marriages, worship. 1 John series, how we love one another as the body of Christ, worship. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all in the glory of God. So, so worship is in obedience, putting, putting God in his rightful place, in awe of his glory and who he is. Ten plus years ago, when I was getting these questions, first in college ministry, about all these things, about science and other religions and things were going on, I realized I need to beef up my understanding on some of this stuff. What I didn't realize, I thought I was just preparing myself intellectually, for the questions I have, it became this mode of worship for me with my creator. I became more in awe of who God is. So I know we have some senior hires in here today, but uh, any students here love science? Anybody love science? Anybody at all? Oh, we got a couple adults. Well, good. The room is just like me. I hated science. (laughs) Hated it. Uh, I thought I was done in high school, then I realized part of my requirements in college was I had to take some science courses. So I did the right thing, I pushed them all to my senior year. <laughs> so my senior year I had to take physics, environmental science, and biology. You know, you're supposed to like coast through your senior year, man, that was rough. I often said the only good thing that came from those courses my senior year was environmental science this really cute blonde sat two rows ahead of me. Her name was Kristen Yannick. As of next Sunday, for 12 years, she'd been Kristen DiDonato. She, uh, yeah, thank you. (laughs) The first time I laid my eyes on her, she was wearing all black. She's wearing all black today. She's here, I'm not gonna point her out because that would embarrass her. But I said, man, that's the only reason God had me in those classes. But let me tell you something. I love science today. Kristen, uh, uh, I'm not a big reader. Outside of scripture, in my seminary studies, uh, back when I'm not a big reader of fiction or anything like that. Well, we were reading one night, and she asked me, what are you reading? And I said, oh, I'm reading about the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Let's just say her look was priceless. But let me geek out for one second, okay? The first law of thermodynamics says this. In a system of matter and energy like our universe, that energy is is in a constant and finite state. You can't take any energy away and and you can't add to it. It's It's constant and finite. The second law, therefore, says that when this energy is used then, it goes from a state of usable energy to unusable. In physics, they call this entropy. It goes from order to disorder. You might be thinking, like I did back at Grove City, who cares? What's the point? Well, if the universe has a finite amount of usable energy that's constantly going from usable to unusable, the sun's an example, all agree that the sun will run out of energy. Nobody cares today because it could be thousands or millions of years. We don't care. But the sheer fact that we still have usable energy today, which is finite, proves the universe can't be infinite. If you go an infinite amount of years back, what do you do? You keep going, and you only have a finite amount of usable energy, we would have ran out by now. The truth of that understanding is what John Zambala, who's the doctor, is one of the doctors of mechanical engineering at Penn State University today, he says the truth of thermodynamics caused him to believe in God. And listen to what he says. Since energy is continually changing from available to unavailable energy, someone had to give it available energy in the beginning. Who or what could have produced energy in an available state in the first place? One can only conclude that the universe had a beginning. And that beginning had to have been caused by someone or something who operates outside of the known laws of thermodynamics. Evolution theories of the universe cannot counteract the above arguments for the existence of God. Listen to what he says. He says, evidence such as this helped to convince me to believe in God and to accept his plan of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. How amazing. The laws of thermodynamics caused Dr. Symbala to say, I can't take this anymore. There has to be a God. And then he heard the gospel, and he trusted in Jesus Christ. So, So the heavens declare there's a God. Have you ever read that anywhere? Maybe the Bible. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim His handiwork. Romans 1.20, for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature is not hidden, it's clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so we're without excuse to say, is there or is there not a God? I got one more. I can't skip DNA because it's too cool. If you ever question if you are special, go study your DNA. Since the discovery of the structure of DNA in 1953, scientists continue to be baffled at the complexity of these molecules that give us life, that allow us to reproduce, that really allow us to exist. Sean McDowell, in a book called Evidence that Demands a Verdict, states this. The human body has an average of 100 trillion cells. In one single cell, the DNA contains the informational equivalent of roughly 8,000 books. If the DNA from one cell were uncoiled, it would extend to about three meters in length. Thus, if the DNA in your body were strung together, it would stretch from Earth to the sun and back roughly 70 times. But DNA is not just stored information. It's actually its own language. In combination with other cellular systems, it also processes information. Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, likens DNA to a computer program, though far more advanced than any software humans have invented. Bill Gates, richest man in the world for many years, founder of Microsoft, says any program Apple, Microsoft has made doesn't compare to the complexity of our own DNA and our bodies. Makes me think of Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's not just God's affection towards you. That's literal. You are fearfully, you are wonderfully made. You are not a mistake. Just look at your body and how God created you. Intelligent design. Third, we're also doing this series to strengthen our community as the body of Christ. There's many ways, we hope, from this series. I want you guys to think about relevant faith. This is not a one-off six-week thing we're doing this summer, really. It's also to help be a catalyst to other initiatives we want to do here at our church. One area we want to focus on is this area of parenting, raising this next generation. If you were here with us in May or June, we did a a church-wide survey across all our campuses. I want to share some of the results from that survey. We had 180 parent units take the survey, Uh, so really when you think about uh, uh, sets of parents, single parents all together, and the number of kids they mentioned they had, we had roughly near 800 people involved in this survey. 34 to 49 years old was the largest demographic. Here's some of the results, and these were humbling, I will say, as church leaders. 54% of parents say they do not feel very prepared to share their faith with their kids, 69% of parents say they either don't feel supported or only somewhat supported in their parenting right here at the church. 54% of parents also said they're not engaged in children or youth ministries. We need more parents involved in the work we're doing with your kids. 31% of parents said they have little to no support network at all, not just the church, 31% of people said, I feel like I'm on an island by myself trying to raise kids in a culture of confusion. I have nowhere to go. 73% of you said, therefore, you strongly desire more resources. You strongly desire more places of connection. So here's, here's what's coming. Starting August 10th and 11th, Big echo we heard is just resources. Where do I go to learn to educate myself? We're going to have a relevant faith section in our bookstore that's going to have from this team, we're going to recommend the 12 to 15 books that not just parents, but if you want to educate yourself on what's going on in this next generation, get these books in your hands. And parents, we need to stop asking the question, What book should I give my teenager to read to help them with their questions? We need to start asking, What should I be reading? to better educate myself so I can disciple my child. We can't outsource that. Well, how can I be the best apologist I can be for the questions I have? The second thing that's coming is a ministry that we're going to call something like the Relevant Parenting Network. We want to create a place here that parents are no longer on an island with the questions you face from your children. We're gonna start off with some form of a conference in the fall. At that conference, the point of that is not just to give out information on subjects, but to start building community and see where this thing goes. At that conference, we're gonna hit certain subjects. Number one on the list that parents said is social media. What do I do with the social media stuff? You also said in that survey, help me share my faith better with my kids. You said, help me have safe, In open conversations with my children. Depression and anxiety was a topic on the top of the list of better understanding of how to handle that. And of course, big on the list was sexuality and gender. Bottom line is we want this movement, relevant faith, to make us stronger. We're gonna do this together. Not be isolated, but to walk this journey together. Number four, connected to that area of parenting. We're doing this series as well to better develop and serve the next generation. Gen Z researchers say between 50 to 70% of them walk away from the church after high school. The sobering truth is this. Because of this area of digital media, 95% of Gen Z have a smartphone, the age of skepticism, skepticism that used to be 18 years old, when you went to college, left the nest, the age of skepticism was 18. Researchers now say it's age 12. You can get information. Junior hires can fact check me as I'm speaking right now. Age of skepticism, 12. Recent surveys of incoming freshmen who said that they they left the church, they said uh, of that group, 79% of them said they started leaving the church between the ages of 10 and 17. Right now, in our homes, in our churches, we must ask ourselves, are we obediently doing everything we can to develop the next generation? This is not just the student ministry staff responsibility. This is all of us together preparing the next generation. Who's going to lead this church? Psalm 145:4: one generation shall commend your works to another, shall declare your mighty acts to them. Psalm 87, a a psalm of Asaph, but but what he says is so appropriate to today. Listen to verses 5 and 7. He, God, established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he, God, commanded our fathers to teach their children. Dads, teach your children the truth of God's word. That the next generation might know them. And not just the next generation, but the children yet unborn. The generation after them. The generation after them. Why? Man, that they would put their hope in God. Not in anything else. Not, not in what anything this world has to offer. Not a career. Not materialism. Not identity and sexuality or anything. Man, that they would put their hope in God. And the last part of this verse, I hope, I hope that's the definition of the next generation. He says that they will not forget the works of God, but they would keep His commandments. It would be the generation of obedience, a generation who's not biblically illiterate, but they understand God's word, and they're living it out. Babylon B is a well-known social media Christian news satire, some of you might know them. Here's one of their posts from a few weeks ago. Congregation prays graduating senior be protected from basic secular arguments that they never bothered to prepare her for. Meant to be comical and funny, but it's sadly true. Too many teenagers go off to college or the workforce, and they begin facing basic theological challenges that they never knew existed. The first time our children and teens, need to confront the challenging arguments for same-sex marriage, for abortion, for gender, for naturalistic evolution, for other religions, for the validity of Scripture needs to be right here with us in a safe place where they can ask those questions and we can engage them on them, not when they go off and start engaging those questions too late. Gen Z is also all about authenticity and relationships you have a far better chance for truth to sink in if it comes from a trusted relationship, not a book that you give them. So why relevant faith? Why should we strive to be the best apologists we can be? Why are we retooling our student ministry curriculum that we hope to communicate to you sometime in August? We're going to make sure we drill down from kindergarten through 12th grade the foundations first of God's word and also age and stage apologetics. So when they're going in the junior high, they're already knowing what's coming. When they're going in the senior high, they already know what's coming. When they go out on their own, they are prepared with the questions they're going to face. Why? Because they demand it. And because they're asking the questions from the culture we gave them, the church needs to stop being reactive in this area and start being proactive in developing the next generation. One more. Ultimately, we're doing this series to share clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every sermon in the six weeks of a relevant faith, the gospel is going to be clearly presented. Anthony Flew, some might know that name, most won't. He was a renowned English philosopher in the 20th century. He wrote over 30 books, uh, most famously, Theology and Falsification. In that that short paper, which is really well read, uh, he said, the idea of God is philosophically meaningless. He was a leader in that movement until midway through the prime of his career, the DNA structure was discovered. He said upon that discovery, I can no longer objectively deny the existence of a divine intelligence. Upon his death, the New York Times in 2004 published an article about his life, and here's what they say. That research on DNA and what he believed to be inconsistencies in the Darwinian account of evolution had forced him to reconsider his views. DNA research, he said, "quote This is flaw talking, has shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of arrangements which are needed for life, that intelligence must have been involved." Christian scientists touted this as a huge win. Man, Anthony flaw flu says there must be a God. Here's the thing: admitting that there's divine intelligence is one thing but that doesn't save you. The only thing that saves a person from eternal separation from the living God is understanding that you are a sinner at the core, every single one of us. Sin separates us from God, and as sinners, there is nothing we can do to earn the righteous standard God requires for salvation and eternal life with him. There is nothing you can do. That's why he sent his son. The eternal son of God took on flesh. He lived the perfect life you could never live. And he said the penalty of your sin is death, spiritual separation from me forever. I'm taking that on. He died on the cross for your sin. He was buried in the grave and he rose again. Salvation is not in anything we do. It's in what Jesus Christ has done for us. And admitting that there's a God doesn't save you. Only trusting in Jesus Christ alone saves you. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way. I'm not one of many, I'm the way. I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to God, the Father, except through me. Romans 10.9 says, you don't earn your way to me. Perfect church attendance won't do it. Great morality won't do it. Only if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him in the dead, that's the only way to be saved. Sadly, at the end of that New York Times article, They state that Anthony flew at the end of his life, although discovering there was a God, still refused to believe in an afterlife. The article ends with this quote directly from him, quote, I want to be dead when I'm dead and that's an end to it. I don't want an unending life. I don't want anything without end. I share that story because relevant faith is not about winning arguments. It's about winning souls for Jesus Christ, period. If we win an argument about evolution or divine creation or, or win an argument about intelligent design, that's great. We want to we acknowledge ourselves. But if we never preach the gospel and share about Jesus, what's the point? Anthony Flew said, I want my life to end and that's it. Well, that's what he desired. But the truth is God's word says he's going to spend an eternal life one way or the other, either with God or eternally separated from him. The reason why we're going to answer these questions, does God exist? Is Jesus really the only way? Is the Bible reliable, evil and suffering? Why? Why is there evil and suffering in our world? Is heaven or hell for real? It's not to win arguments but to break down the barriers so people can see Jesus. To understand the questions that people have. And we do this as 1 Peter 3:15 says with gentleness and respect. Why? Cuz we're not trying to put people in their place. We're trying to guide them to Jesus. Kristen and I we uh, we love to run. Uh, um, And we lived, when we were in Wilkinsburg, serving there for five years, we lived in a place called Forest Hills. By name, you know that's not a great place to run. Hills are not fun. So moving back to the South Hills, we're so thankful for being back by the Montour Trail. Who loves the Montour Trail? Love the Montour Trail. Now, if you ever ran or walked or did a bike on the Montour Trail, they have a bunch of these tunnels, right? And they look like they're about to cave in. They all leak water, and it could be the hottest day, and somehow water's coming through those tunnels. But I love those tunnels because they are refreshing on a hot day. So a couple of weeks ago, it was one of those days, if you looked on your weather app, it says, don't run. What did I do? Went for a run. Went around 11 o'clock, and I was running, and it was unbearably hot. But I knew that tunnel was coming. And here's a picture of the actual tunnel I went through. I went back and took a photo of it because I was thinking about this series. I was running in the hot, dry heat of the day, but I knew that tunnel was coming. And I knew once I got there, I would be refreshed. What I didn't expect is that it was so hot that the cool air actually came out of the tunnel, and about a few hundred feet before I got there, I could start feeling the breeze. It was literally drawing me in to the tunnel. I share that because I want you to picture the tunnel as the church. Secure, refreshed, renewed in Christ. And only the Holy Spirit can convict a sinner of their sin and draw them into relationship with Jesus Christ. And my picture that people living in a culture of confusion are in like that hot sun, and, and the Holy Spirit is that breeze. Only the Holy Spirit can draw someone into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But you know what? Where else does the Holy Spirit reside? right here and I believe in a day where the trend of the next generation the trend of the culture as a whole is headed away towards God it's time for the church to get out of the tunnel and engage people on this path of life and that through this series we would go under the power of the Holy Spirit right only he can draw someone to himself but go and engage people who have serious genuine questions about God. And maybe God would use you along that journey to just break down some of those barriers to ultimately allow Him, Him alone, to lead them into relationship with Jesus Christ. So I'm going to give you one challenge over the next four weeks, this one challenge. At the end of your aisle, either on the sides or in the middle, there's a basket. If you're at the end of an aisle, check for a basket. Pass that down. Take one of those postcards, one of those postcards is an invitation for the summer series. I'm not asking you to take five or six. If you want more, we'll get you more. I'm asking you to take one invitation, get out of the tunnel, and who are you going to go engage and invite them to this series? Maybe someone's on your mind already. Uh, the things we've discussed, you're like, man, I know who needs to be here. Maybe over the next four weeks, God will allow you to engage someone, and you have that thing in your back pocket, and you say, hey, my, my, you, you mentioned something about what's going on in your life. My church is doing this series. It's about answering the questions a lot of people have. I, I invite you to come with me. would love for you to come and hear about this series. And through this, again, not about winning arguments. It's about us tolling ourselves, resourcing ourselves that we might be used in today's culture of confusion to make more clear to people that the questions they have, they're all found in God. And ultimately, Christianity is the relevant faith for their eternal soul. Because at the end of this life, The only living hope an individual has is their security in Jesus Christ alone. I'm going to ask that you stand as we close in song.